Do we have our schedule of, uh, of feasts that we can throw up here? This is it, friends. This is the last, uh, this is the last feast that we're going to study. Um, we've been going through the seven feasts of Israel. Um, and, and there are, understand this, there are more feasts, um, obviously, within uh, Judaism today. What we're looking at is Leviticus 23, the seven feasts prescribed by the Lord in Leviticus 23 that Israel was to observe, okay? So uh, this is not a comprehensive study in Judaism. That's not the goal here. Uh, we're looking at um, Leviticus 23, so you can open there. We're going to read um, about uh, Feast of Tabernacles, which is the last uh, feast that we're going to look at. Um, but the point of this study, and I'm, I'm, I've said this over and over and over and over and over again, the point of this study, again, is not to become experts uh, in, in the Jewish holiday, nor to understand completely what is being observed currently. Because as you know, and as I've told you again several times, uh, we are in kind of a, a period of rabbinic Judaism, which is actually very, very different from temple Judaism. It's very different from what, uh, from what Jesus would have, would have walked in. Some of the tenets are still the same, and, and some of the ideas are still the same, but the opinion of the rabbi has become central to Judaism, whereas it was not um, uh, in, this, in this book, and, and certainly was not... Uh, when Jesus was, uh, was alive. And so uh, we are not, that is not our intention to understand completely culturally what's going on now, though we're going to talk about some of those things. Our intention is to understand the shadow. Because what, um, what does Paul say about the feasts and the Sabbath? That it's a shadow, right? And what's the fullness? It's in Christ. And so what we're looking at, we, this, is not, this is not a departure from Christianity. This is not a, a departure from studying Christ. But what we're doing is we're understanding Christ more fully because we're seeing him from the Old Testament. We're seeing him from uh, as the Lord prescribed him to be a shadow so that when the real thing came, his people would understand it because they've been walking in the shadow the whole time. Does that make sense? And so what we're doing is just getting a clearer picture uh, of the shadow. And we have, I, I mean, this has been fascinating. Has anybody else just loved getting into this? Uh, this has been an extremely fascinating study. I have enjoyed this um, a ton. And we've gone through, uh, we spent two weeks on Sabbath. Uh, we spent two weeks on, uh, on Passover. Um, we looked at uh, the Feast of Unleavened Bread, and we are, here we go. Um, will you go back one? Yeah. Uh, we looked at first fruits. Uh, we looked at the Feast of Weeks, and, and remember our first, uh, remember our fulfillments? How was Passover fulfilled by Christ? How was this a shadow? Anybody? Yeah, blood of the Lamb. What about unleavened bread? Jesus was crucified on Passover. What happened to Jesus on unleavened bread? He was buried on unleavened bread. All of Israel was taking all the leaven away. They were putting it away. We that, that sin, he became sin who knew no sin, that literally Christ became sin and was put away in the grave on this day, on unleavened bread. Uh, and then uh, what, what about here? What happens on first fruits? Yeah, resurrection, right? Uh, the, the, uh, remember we talked about uh, the difference between fertility and resurrection and how this was a, uh, this was a feast uh, intended to look at resurrection. What is dead is now alive. And we looked at how uh, because Christ is, is risen, that Scripture says He's the first fruits, and we, we are the harvest that's to follow. He's the first that has defeated death. He's the first that has overcome death up until uh, 30 A.D., 
uh, what happens in 30 AD? Jesus dies, and this is the first time where Flavius Josephus writes that, uh, that there, is no, uh, there is no more uh, turning white of the red yarn because that sacrifice was no longer acceptable because the sacrifice had been made, right? In temple times, um, outside of the wilderness, they would slaughter uh, the scapegoat uh, because uh, there was no wilderness to release him into. We talked about how that was kind of a little joke. Um, but anyway, uh, you had to be here. Um, but do you see this? So we've come through this very, very, very serious, serious time of atonement. Now, think about the seriousness weight of atonement and then what's going to come when that atonement is made. What, what, what are you going to feel when that atonement is made? Anybody in here a Christian? <laughs> I'm just saying, like, what, what is that like in that moment when you enter into Christ and the weight and the burden and the guilt and the, the, uh, the death of sin is removed and all of a sudden there's life? I mean, what, what is that like? Oh, man, freedom. It's for freedom that you have been set free. There's freedom and there should be what? What, what comes with freedom? Joy and celebration, right? Have you ever seen any, like a prisoner let out? I mean, maybe you haven't, because I've never seen a prisoner let out. It's <laughs> a dumb example. <laughs> but can you imagine if you, <laughs> if you saw somebody released from prison? Do you think it would be a sulking moment? Do you think that, that captivity would be, uh, a release from captivity would be a sulking moment? No, there would be joy, there would be celebration, there's freedom, right? Um, and so what we're going to look at today uh, is we're going to look at the Feast of Tabernacles, or booths, okay? Uh, and this is a time, and this is four days, and you got to kind of, again, we've got, we've got Jewish calendar problems here, trying to reconcile with our calendar. Um, to us, it would look like five days, okay? Um, to them, uh, it's, it's, uh, it's four. Um, I'm sorry, flip that. Flip that. To them, it's five. To us, it looks like four. Remember, we, we looked at the, the differences in the calendar with, with Passover and how we could uh, reconcile the three days with Jesus. And um, Anyway, so there, uh, there are five or four days here, however you want to look at it, uh, after atonement where they begin this massive, massive, massive preparation for celebration. Uh, because there is, after these four days, they're going to be doing, I'm going to tell you a little bit about what they're doing during those four or five days, and then this feast begins, and this is a seven-day feast, and it ends on the eighth day with a day of rest, a holy, holy Sabbath, okay? So, you caught up, you feel good, that was a semester in a blink of an eye. <laughs> you good? Uh, I would really encourage you to, to go back and look at these things. You cannot, you cannot get uh, deep enough where you're not going to be wowed um, in how the Lord is, has perfectly, to every minute detail, fulfilled the letter of what he said he was going to do in Christ. Um, and I think what it does, certainly for me, uh, what it does is it just adds such, uh, not, not, the, not that I needed validity, but it's like, wow, the, the, the depths of, of who Christ is, the detail. He's not, it's not just like this ambiguous backup plan. You know what I mean? Like sometimes we have that mentality of like uh, Adam and Eve screwed it up and so it was like scramble time. We had to figure out how to, and then the whole thing in the wilderness didn't pan out. So, okay, uh, we got to send Jesus, right? And we kind of have this men mentality of Jesus is this backup plan when in reality, uh, Jesus is in Genesis 1. You know what I mean? 
I mean, he's there from the very beginning, and, and he is, he's got his hands on everything that's created, and the intended purpose from the very beginning before sin is Christ. Isn't that incredible? Like, I, you know what I mean? Because we, we just, I don't think we think that way. I think we think of Christ as this backup plan, and, and, and what we're seeing here is that absolutely not, that God has made way for Christ to come since the very, very beginning of the book, since the moment that he spoke into creation, there was an intent and a purpose for your salvation and your restoration to be in his son, Jesus. That's incredible. That's an incredible uh, thought, that is an, and that, that nothing in all of history has violated that plan, that it has been perfect, and now that you rest in communion with God because he has set that forth from the beginning of time, and now we have relationship with him. Isn't that, isn't that cool? That there was such detail gone through that you would enter into relationship uh, with God through his son, that his son was planned before uh, there was plan, you know. So anyway, I, I just, I don't know, it's just been, that's what it's been for me through this is, is just seeing that. Go to Leviticus 23. I'm just going to read to you again. We're going to read this, this piece about uh, what, the, what the feast is. And, and verse 39, you may already be there, but uh, verse 39 says, on exactly the 15th day of the seventh month, when you've gathered in the crops of the land, you shall celebrate the feast of the Lord for seven days with a rest on the first day and a rest on the eighth day. And on the first day you shall take for yourselves the foliage of beautiful trees, palm branches, and boughs of leafy trees, and willows of the brook, and you shall rejoice before the Lord your God uh, for seven days. Uh, you, you remember the uh, description of Jesus coming into Jerusalem? You remember that? And that's, that's very closely tied to Passover when they would be welcoming the lamb into their home for four days before they would sacrifice him. But uh, this is a similar type look in Israel. Okay, it's a celebration with the, uh, what does he just describe here, with the greenery. So you would see palm branches in this. Um, it, it, it's, a, it's a very similar, uh, similar look. Uh, let's see, where did I leave off? 41. You shall thus celebrate it as a feast to the Lord for seven days in the year. It shall be a perpetual statute throughout your generations. You shall celebrate it in the seventh month. You shall live in booths. Anybody else have a different word there for that, for booths? Temporary shelters, anybody else got anything different? No? You shall live in booths for seven days. All the native born in Israel shall live in booths. This is, uh, her says temporary shelters. This is uh, an offshoot of the word uh, tabernacle. Um, uh, so that your generations, this is verse 43, may know what I had, uh, that I had the sons of Israel live in booths when I brought them out from the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. And this is the end of the chapter, and Moses declared to the sons of Israel the appointed times of the Lord. And this is, this is the closing of that, and we see these seven feasts now laid out. But uh, the interesting piece of this um, is, and, and again, you gotta, there's differences in here and then what we actually see celebrated. Uh, on these middle days, from the Day of Atonement to the beginning of Tabernacles, and it's not actually what's said in Scripture, but what begins in Israel is a preparation of these booths. Uh, they're called sukkah, S-U-K-K-A-H, or S-U-K-K-O-T. Um, and what they are is huts. I mean, they're literally grass huts, okay? And what they're representative of, what do we see here? What do, what do they represent? Yeah, they're not like hanging out in brick homes, 
Okay, so uh, this, is, this is, the Lord is saying, look, you're going you're gonna to celebrate. Remember, they're still in the wilderness, right? And he said about Passover, you're only going to celebrate Passover in the land that I, that I give you. But there's, there's constant, and this is, this is why you journal. There's constant remembering of what the Lord has done, even to the point where they, they will physically build a dwelling. And he says, you're gonna, all of Israel is going to live in it, and you're going to do it throughout your generations. So uh, even... Yes, you're going to live in it because you need to, but your, your sons and daughters will live in it because they're going to remember. There's such a, a, a huge um, emphasis that the Lord puts on remembering testimony of the Lord. One, it allows us to speak testimony. It allows us, okay, why are you living in a booth? Well, let me tell you the greatness of the Lord. He had uh, fathers uh, build stones uh, on the other side of the Jordan before they went into Israel. Why? And, and the Lord says, why are you going to pile up these stones? So that when, you're, when your kids ask, you can tell them about the faithfulness of the Lord. Dad, why are there a pile of stones? Well, there's nothing significant about the stones. But let me tell you what they, what they uh, commemorate. Let me tell you about the greatness of the Lord. So this is one of those uh, feasts. Now, it's done in great joy. Does that strike you as a little odd at all? It did me. I read it and it was like, wait a minute, so you want us to live in huts? And this is supposed to be a, like a joy thing? And then I realized, wait a minute, how, think about how a little kid would see this. Like, think about what a little kid's going to say when dad says, all right, let's build the fort. You know, you know what I mean? Like, did any of you guys get in cardboard boxes and hang out? Because I did. Like, new refrigerator was like the greatest thing that ever happened to a kid because it is like the box among all boxes, right? And, and it was just such an adventure. So what, what happens during these days is that um, families would begin to construct um, these booths. And the way that the, the directions are is that you're to, to make them of these, of these different grasses, okay? Representative of what was, what was available in the wilderness. And you're supposed to shade yourself. Now, this is rabbinic, okay? So uh, there's, there's, there's rules about everything. But you're supposed to have enough shelter where you're shaded from the sun so you could, you could be out there but also enough where you can see the stars and where uh, some minor elements can make it through, right? So you don't want it to be too fancy, but you don't want to get too extreme either, right? You don't, you don't want to have uh, all the rain coming in, just you, a little roof leak, you know. The, the, the purpose of this is, um, is that the intent is for you to live in these booths. And what they would do, they, would, they, would, they will live in these, uh, in these booths for seven days, okay? Every day they would have their meals in there, and it's changed a little bit, and sometimes it's like we just go out to the hut for our meals, and that's enough. Uh, but, but the idea is that they would live in these booths for seven days, remembering what the Lord had done. But here's the, here's the interesting part. What, do you, what, does this, what does this remind them of when they... We said that the, the dwellings in the wilderness... But what else do you feel like this reminds them of? What, what happened in terms of their... Okay, so they exit, they exit Egypt. And then what begins to happen in terms of direction from the Lord? How does it happen? How does, how does the Lord speak? How does he give direction? You remember? Say it loud. You're right. Yeah. There's a pillar of cloud by day and what by night? Fire by night. What, what does the Lord, and think about this in terms of, of family, what does the Lord become for the, for the people walking through Israel, right? He, he literally takes up residence with them in the wilderness, right? This, this is the central theme of this celebration is that God tabernacled 
with Israel, that God uh, fellowship with Israel in, in their home. And so as they're in these booths, when they're uh, celebrating this feast, what they're celebrating is, yes, we're remembering what we lived in in terms of the dwelling, uh, but more than that, we're remembering how God took up residence with us, how God was with us, leading us, how he, how he lived with us in the wilderness. You know, I think that a lot of times we look at the New Testament and we, when we read the idea of an indwelling God, we read this, this idea of Christ with us as the Holy Spirit. We, we, I think sometimes we think it's this foreign concept that God actually ha- habitating uh, with his creation is somehow, uh, is somehow a foreign thing. But it's not. This was the intent from the very, very beginning. We read in Genesis 1.1, what was, what was the relationship like with, uh, with Adam and Eve? Not Genesis 1.1, sorry. You're like, verse 1 says in the beginning. That's not... <laughs> yeah, he's, he's hanging out. God is abiding with his creation. It, well, even after they sin, what does it say they hear? They hear the noise of the Lord walking in the cool of the day, right? There's this, there's this abiding relationship. And then that continues on uh, into it, he rescues them from Egypt. And what does he do? He sets down as a, as a uh, cloud of smoke by day and a fire by night. And then he says, here's what I want you to do. I want you to build this habitation called a tabernacle because it's where I'm going to live with you. Now, can you imagine this? Like, think about what's actually happening in this scenario. That God, an uncreated God that spoke life into existence, is saying, I want you to build me a house. His intent and his his purpose is to take all of who he is and live with us and be with us. Not in a violation of him, but in a connection with us. Isn't that crazy? This is not a foreign, the Holy Spirit in this abiding in a Christian is not a foreign concept. It's been the desire of God from the beginning for his creation and God to be a unit. You see that? And so this is what they're, this is what they're remembering um, and celebrating. I want you to go to uh, Exodus 40. You're going to go to your left to find Exodus. And then we're going to look at something that that Jesus did, and, and we're going to talk about, because I told you, remember, the, that there's fulfillment in these last three feasts. There's uh, prophetic fulfillment in each of these, and I want you to see that as well. So, uh, But look at uh, Exodus 40. And somebody read 34 uh, through 38. Read it loud. Man, I love that. I love that picture of obedience there. That's not what we're going to talk about today, but I love that scripture that says, "If the Lord did not move, they did not move." You know, that that they literally watched for His presence, and it was this manifestation in this uh, cloud and fire. But they did not go anywhere. Um, they stayed in these dwellings unless the Lord moved. And 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 we're not we're not going to go there. But go to Exodus thirteen. Somebody read verse twenty one. I just want you to see this. This is an established 
um, concept of God dwelling with us uh, in the Old Testament. So go to uh, Exodus 13, 21. Somebody just read that. Go to Deuteronomy 1. In Deuteronomy, the, the first chapter is kind of a recapping of the history of Israel. And so we're going to see this, uh, this, I, this concept of this uh, abiding presence here. But I want you to see how it, how it talks about it. Uh, Deuteronomy chapter 1, and I'm going to read, I'm going to start in verse 31. It says, and in the wilderness where you saw, well, I'm going to go back up, go to 30. The Lord your God who goes before you will himself fight on your behalf, just as he did for you in Egypt before your eyes. So what's Moses doing? He's recounting to the people the history of the faithfulness of God. This is another journal moment. Anybody like feeling the journal thing today? Cool. Uh, in 31, it says, and in the wilderness, now and remember, he's bringing to, to mind uh, what has happened. In the wilderness where you saw how the Lord your God carried you, Listen to this description. He carried you just as a man carries his son in all the way which you have walked until you came unto this place. But for all of this you did not trust the Lord your God who goes before you on your way to seek out a place for you to encamp in fire by night and cloud by day to show you the way in which you should go. Now, look at the way in which he describes this abiding presence with the Lord. What, what was the purpose? I mean, what, what does he describe in verse 31? Somebody just read verse 31 again. What's the picture here of this uh, abiding presence? Read it. You see this picture? Do you see, do you see the picture? That what, what happens in this, in this abiding with the Lord being with his people is that he becomes a father carrying a son. This is the picture of abide. Do you see this? Jesus always talks about this, this abide, this concept of rest, this concept of, of no activity produces activity. Do you, know, you know what I mean? This paradox that we've talked about of abiding in Christ. And this is the picture. That abiding uh, means to, really to allow yourself to be carried by the only one capable of carrying you. Allowing yourself to be led by the only one capable of leading you. And this is not a concept that was just uh, fabricated uh, by Jesus in the New Testament. This is something that was established by God as, in terms of his relationship with his people from the very beginning. He said, this is what I'm going to be for you. And the way that that's going to look is going to change. Because here it's going to be a cloud uh, by day and, and a fire by night. But, but Jesus says, okay, so now that's going to change. I'm going to send you myself in the Holy Spirit. And he's going to do the very same thing that Father God did with you in the wilderness. He's going to carry you because it's his presence in you. It just looks different. The concept, the idea, what's happening is the very same. Do you see that? Isn't that cool? It's the exact same, and we get this brilliant picture of how the Holy Spirit is going to carry us in all things, but how the life of God, if we abide in Him, that where He goes, we're going to go, what He does, we're going to do, but this abiding it allows Him to carry us in all the ways in which He would go. Isn't that awesome? So now go to John chapter 7, and we're going to find Jesus within this, within this, this feast. Now, have we seen Jesus in every single feast? Yes. Further proof. 
Further proof that he in no way violated even an ounce of the law, uh, that he completed it uh, perfectly. But anyway, John chapter 7, are you there? It says, Jesus teaches at the feast. That's kind of the heading here. This is the feast that we're talking about. We're talking about the, the Feast of Tabernacles, okay? Uh, and and here's, how, here's how we know that. We're going to, in, um, in verse uh, 37, we're going we're gonna to see an actual ritual that he, uh, that he speaks into. Uh, but but here's, here's what would happen, okay? And, and we're going we're gonna to talk about, so just hold your finger in John chapter 7. Uh, so in this, in this feast, when, when in Roman rule, okay, there's still a temple because the temple doesn't fall until 70 AD, right? So uh, there's still a temple. Now keep in mind, the temple that Jesus would have hung out in uh, was very different than the original. So uh, Herod modified the temple uh, a lot, okay, to where some even call it like the third temple. We, we only uh, generally refer to there being uh, two temples, but the, the temple uh, was so modified by Herod that some, it's like, that's not even the same thing. It was so edited and, and modified, okay? But, but this is the temple that Jesus would have, uh, this, is the, this is the same place where uh, the, he, he encounters the money changers, right? Uh, this is at Passover. We, we know why, because they're, they're buying uh, goods in order to, uh, to change money because they won't use Roman money because uh, it's, got, it's got the face of a man on it. They won't do it, okay? Uh, so anyway, so, so we see this Jesus encounter this temple uh, several times. This is what uh, he's in right now. And what would happen is uh, that at, at this point, they would have celebrated the feast uh, for uh, six days. And on the seventh day, the final day of the feast, before the eighth day, which is the rest, on the final day of the feast, uh, the priest would, uh, priests would go to uh, the pool of Siloam. You ever heard of that pool? Where do you remember the pool of Siloam? Yeah. Yeah, exactly right. Jesus tells this guy, he says, go wash in the pool of Siloam, and when you wash in the pool of Siloam, uh, you will be healed. He does, he is. Uh, Anybody know what Siloam means? It means sent. Isn't that cool? Isn't that cool? That healing takes place, uh, and then immediately, what has to happen after healing? Move fast. What does Jesus say when, uh, when he says uh, for them to eat their Passover? Get your sandals on, get your loins girded, because I'm going to do something incredible, and then it's gonna, you better be ready to take off running. Uh, and this guy gets this healing, and he goes quickly and testifies of the greatness of, of, uh, of Jesus. So we, we recognize this pool. It's a very, uh, uh, very um, what, what's the word I'm looking for? Um, poignant. What? Thank you. I was in the peas. <laughs> it's a very prominent uh, piece uh, in, in Israel and Jerusalem. And, uh, and it was actually would have been um, literally at the, at when the temple would have been uh, the temple. It would have been uh, in, like in the shadow of the temple. I and mean, it's very, 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 very close. Okay? And you can go, you can go to it now. We've been to the Pool of Siloam. Uh, very, very cool. Um, but anyway, so what would happen is these priests would go to the pool of Siloam. The belief is that uh, in the pool there were miraculous uh, waters. And uh, so they would go and they would pull out water from the pool of Siloam. They would walk uh, around, uh, and I want to make sure I'm telling you this, this right. Uh, they would walk around the altar seven times. And on the seventh time after they walked around the altar, uh, they would pour out this water uh, on 
the altar, okay? And it's supposed to, the, the idea is that it, uh, it's from Isaiah chapter 12. If you want to go there, I want you to see it, actually. I do want you to see it. Isaiah chapter 12, verse 3. Therefore, you will, draw, you will joyously draw water from the springs uh, of salvation. And in that day, you will say, give thanks the Lord call on his name. This is where this idea comes, and uh, there's several other times in water. Do you remember what, what happened when the people of Israel were grumbling and they had no water? Um, what, what does the Lord tell Moses to do? He says, he says strike the rock, and, then, and, and Moses does, and uh, what happens? It's like, this is one of those places in Scripture, I'm like, seriously, you didn't elaborate? Like, he hits a rock and water starts coming out, and that's all you said, is it he hit the rock and it did. Like, can you give me a better picture of that? Because that sounds incredible. Uh, but, but all of Israel, I mean, we're talking about mi- a, over a million people. Remember, we looked at the numbers that all of Israel drinks from this water that Moses strikes from the rock, right? And so this water just, I mean, can you imagine in the desert, in the wilderness, all of a sudden there's flowing water, uh, f- clean flowing water enough for everybody uh, to, to drink. And so this picture of water is, is very prominent. Watch out. Very prominent uh, picture. They understand this. And so this is what this, this uh, is talking about. When, and they, pull, they pour the, uh, the water over the altar. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to go to John chapter 7. And we're going to pick up Jesus in this, this festival, okay? So beforehand, his brothers have said, you've got to go to Jerusalem for this feast because you're doing some really ridiculous stuff right now and people need to know about it. People have got to know who you are. I have never seen anything like this before. You've got to go claim yourself. This is a very selfish and arrogant claim for themselves. They were ready for Messiah to be Messiah, ready for this conquering king. And so they tried to rush Jesus and say, go now, declare yourself for who you are. And Jesus says, it's not time for me to go. You go and he sends them out. And people, we read that people uh, at the feast, so Jesus kind of made a stir. People at the feast are going, where is he at? Where is this guy that we've heard uh, about? There's some kind of some wild things going on. Where is he at? And you can see kind of this, this uh, undertow. They're really wanting to know where Jesus is. And, and we're gonna, so then that's, that's a lot of the first part of, of John uh, chapter 7. Jesus tells him, go up by yourself, uh, and then he goes um, quietly. Again, Jesus fulfilling every letter of the law. He goes to Jerusalem for this, uh, for this feast. Uh, and I want to pick it up in verse, um, let's go to verse 32. You should, you should read the whole chapter. It's, it's, we'll give you a clearer picture. We just don't have time. But uh, we'll go to verse 32. The Pharisees heard the crowd muttering these things about him. And the chief priests and the Pharisees sent officers to seize him. And therefore Jesus said, For a little while longer I am with you. Then I go to him who sent me. You will seek me and will not find me. And where I am, you cannot come. The Jews then said to one another, Where does this man intend to go that we will not find him? He is not intending to go uh, to the dispersion among the Greeks and teach the Greeks, is he? Which was like, wait a minute. They cannot figure him out. You understand this? If you, read the, if you read previously in the chapter, they even ask him if he has a demon, right? Because of the things that he's saying, he's talking about being from the Father, and they're like, are you, people, are, and then he says, that I'm not going certain places because people are trying to kill me, and they're like, who do you think that you are? Like, nobody's trying to kill you, you're delusional, right? And this is when they ask him, do you have a demon? They cannot figure him out. 
We read, it, we read another place in Scripture where it says he teaches with such authority that they, they, they cannot understand where it comes from, right? And here, they, they, he's, he's kind of messing them up again and um, it says, where, where does this man intend to go that we will not find him? He's not intending to go to the dispersion among the Greeks and teach the Greeks, is he? What is this statement that he said to me, you will seek me and not find me and where I am you cannot come? And here's verse 37, so you ready? Now on the last day, now here's where we pick it up. So we got to know what's going on here. On the last day, the great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried out saying, so what's happening on the last day? I just gave you the history. What's happening on the last day? This is the epic moment of celebration, right? This is the, the, the end. This has been a feast of joy and celebration uh, for the Lord God and his tabernacling among them and his faithfulness to them. There is, there is celebration, celebration, celebration. It culminates in this big moment where the priests are going to pour water out on the altar. And this is where we find Jesus. Because remember, Jesus speaks into the Passover, right? If we don't understand Passover, we don't know what Jesus is saying when he says, this is my body. What's well, the same here. Jesus is about to allude to something in the feast, and if we don't know what's going on, we're, not, we're, not, we're going to miss it. Does that make sense? So here's what he says. It says, he, uh, Jesus stood and cried out, saying, this is the end of verse 37, if anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. What are they, what's the water about? They were thirsty in the wilderness. Moses struck the rock, and Jesus says, if you are thirsty... Let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scripture said, from his innermost being will flow rivers of living water. But this he spoke of the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive, for the Spirit was not yet given because Jesus was not yet glorified. So... (laughs) What's he doing? I mean, can you, ima- can you imagine this moment? And, and it doesn't say here whether it's before or after the moment of pouring out, pouring out water. I can't, I can't tell you that, but uh, we know that, this, that that was a central point in this day. And that they were all gathered, okay, so you can get an idea that if there's a, if there's a gathering, that we're in a, we're in a moment where this is coming to a head. So we're pretty close to that moment, okay? We know we're within the day, we're pretty close to the moment of the water pouring out. And Jesus stands, and it doesn't just say that he speaks, right? What's the difference in speaking and crying out? What's the difference? Yeah, you want to be sure everybody hears you. Is there a little bit of passion? Is there a little bit of desire in crying out? Do you see, I mean, do you see the heart of Christ in this? He's watching, he's literally observing them uh, celebrate a ritual that he fulfills and he's going to fulfill in the, in the giving of his Holy Spirit and what his life, his abiding life. Remember, this, is, this whole thing is about God tabernacling with his people and Jesus stands in the, in the culmination of this feast and he says, I'm going to do it. I'm going to fulfill it not just in symbol but in real life. I'm going to send you the Spirit and you will never thirst again. Two chapters earlier, what does he tell the Samaritan woman? What does he tell her about water? You're never going to thirst again. 
And this was a Samaritan woman. This he cries out in front of all of his people. Jesus was Jewish, participating in a Jewish feast, the Jewish Messiah. And with a Jewish heart, he stands up with his heart broken for his people, knowing that they're celebrating something that is in their midst. And he cries out, this is me. Man. And that what you were thirsty for in the wilderness, you'll never be thirsty for again in me. And that what you celebrate by the presence of God abiding with you in the wilderness, I'm going to take up residence in you. That my desire from the beginning has been to abide with my people. And that because of the crucifixion we see, because of his death, his burial, and his resurrection, we now have the opportunity for the, for the atonement to be made on our behalf that we would be able to house the Holy Spirit, the very presence of God in us. We have been made clean that he might move in. And this is what Jesus says. And if you believe in me, as the scripture said, from your innermost being, will flow rivers of living water. This is significant because this is speaking of of how this Spirit's going to inhabit us, that He's going to be the very depths of who we are, right? That from the deepest parts of a man, you got to understand this, we were created with these depths, that those depths might be filled by God. And Jesus says this about the Spirit. He says He's going to be in the depths of you. The, the Hebrew can go back to this, and it's like it's in your belly, right? I mean, it's like this is the deepest part of your gut. This is, this is the deepest part of a man. This is where that spring will be that will never run dry, that you'll never thirst from again, and then will, out of you will flow rivers of living water. Wow. Because it's, look, look at this, too. This is that same water that flows out that satisfies your thirst. Do you see that? He's not saying there's going to be one spring that you're going to drink from and the other that's going to flow out. It's this same water. It's this same Holy Spirit that's going to quench your thirst but also come out like a rushing river. You see the significance there? That the presence of God in us that are abiding with Him in His Holy Spirit is our very satisfaction and our life. It's his life in us that we would never, ever, ever, ever thirst again. But it's also that life that comes out of us and flows like a river. It's the same water. It's the same Holy Spirit. This is just like, these are moments where I just, I'm going to rent that DVD. You know, I want to see Jesus stand up and do that. You know, from, from, the, from the very beginning, the desire of man has been to abide with God. This is not a foreign concept. This is not something that's just happened. This is, this is not something that has been removed. You are wired by nature to desire communion with God. That's how he made you. And, and that communion, that deepest deepest, deepest desire is fulfilled in the giving of the Holy Spirit. The very depths of God now lives in us and abides in us. Isn't that cool? Isn't that crazy? We got singers. Y'all point your hands to them. Lord, bless their mouths, bless their fingers as they, as they play. 
Lord, I pray that we would worship with them as they enter the throne. In Jesus' name. You see that, though? Like, there, what Jesus is, is saying is, like, the, the, the deepest desires of a man to have communion with me have been fulfilled. What I have been telling you about residing with me from the very beginning of your generations is fulfilled in me and given in the Holy Spirit. We in Christ will never thirst again because the deepest desires of who we are to fellowship with our Creator has been satisfied and given in the Holy Spirit. Isn't that incredible? Like you, There's literally nothing more than you could want than communion with God. And Jesus said you can have it. And not just part of it, but all of it. This also has uh, significance, and I'm going to spend just a little bit of time there. Um, This also has significance uh, in what we see prescribed uh, in the last days, in the coming of the kingdom of heaven, uh, that we we see, and and again, I'm not going to spend a ton of time here, but I want you to go to Revelation 21. This idea of God tabernacling with his people is going to come to fruition. There is a rapture, okay? And we're not, we'll do this study at some point. Uh, my intent here is not to do that all today. There is a rapture. There is a, uh, there is a tribulation that lasts seven years. There is a coming, a literal coming of Christ where he will put his foot down on the Mount of Olives, where he will enter into the east gate of Jerusalem and where he will. Here's the cool thing. East gate of Jerusalem, you know what, what does it look like? Anybody know? Yeah, it's sealed, completely shut. And you know what's in front of it? No. Uh, A Muslim burial ground. Jewish thought is they would, never, they would never defile themselves by being in the presence of, uh, of death, okay? And so uh, here's what this king did. This king heard this idea about, and I, I'm, forgive me, I don't know his name. It starts with an S, but it's long. Uh, anybody know? Do you know what the king's name is? Something S-A-E-H. Anyway, uh, good luck, crossword puzzle. <laughs> um, Anyway, he heard this idea of this Messiah, and, he, and uh, there's a lot of theories about why he did this, okay? So, but the one that is, is very logical and makes sense here, and I'm not saying it's the exact one, but the idea is that he heard uh, the, the, this idea of the Messiah, and he brought in uh, Jewish priests and experts, and he said, okay, tell me about this Messiah, because there's this guy coming, and remember, the Messiah in that, uh, in that idea is this conquering king. So he, a king hears about a conquering king and says, okay, I need to know about this, because this doesn't sound good for me. And they tell him, well, here's what we know. He's coming in the east gate. And so what does this guy do? Seal up the east gate because this guy's not coming in. This king that's going to reign and take over from me is not, uh, is not going to do that. He seals up the east gate. Uh, and then a uh, burial ground is, is, or a, a cemetery is put, uh, put in front of it. Uh, it's kind of like extra precaution. Like there's the, there's the drawbridge and the moat. Okay, <laughs> you got it? The east gate is sealed up. There was a point uh, in the uh, Yom Kippur War where uh, there was an idea like we could sabotage them by blowing open the East Gate and getting in, uh, and that would, that would take our enemy by surprise, uh, but the, uh, the leading general or official, whatever you would call it, uh, in the army said, no, 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 we cannot do that. That gate is only for the Messiah, uh, and they, they won the war 
but did not open the east gate. It is still sealed to this day, and our Messiah, Christ Jesus, will be the one that walks through that east gate. When he puts his foot down on the earth and begins, and this is, again, I'm not telling you order, I'm not telling you, we, we will walk through this, okay, but um, as best we can, but there is a thousand years. It's called the millennial reign. You ever heard of this? There is a thousand years where Christ will reign on the earth. I want you to read about it. It's right here in Revelation. Is anybody in Revelation? Are you already there? What did I say? 21? Did I give you a verse? I'm kidding. Let me find it. <laughs> That's good. Okay, we're moving. I'm sorry. 10.30. Here we go. Okay. Revelation 21, verse 3, And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold thee, what? Dwelling place, tabernacle of God is among men, and he will dwell among them, and they shall be his people, and God himself, look at this, and God himself will be among them. And he will wipe away every tear from their eyes and there will be no longer any death. There will be no longer any mourning or crying or pain. The first things have passed away. And he who sits on the throne says, Behold, I am making all things new. And he said, Write, for these words are faithful and true. The old things will pass away. The new things will come and there will be a literal kingdom where you and I will reign with Christ for a thousand years and he will wipe every tear from the eye and there will be no mourning. Death will be defeated. The enemy will be vanquished and all of the earth, listen to this, all of the earth will adore him as King of kings and Lord of lords as he reigns in Jerusalem. I'm not, I'm, it's not fairy tale. It's here. And I'm just saying, we've seen every single one of these feasts fulfilled to the letter. And I'm not saying, but I'm saying how incredible would it be if on that day it's the real deal as real as he was in the desert, is as real as he will be in the thousand years, is as real as he is in us now. Agree? Okay. Well, Lord, I pray that what you have spoken here today, the truths that you have revealed, would, uh, would not just sit in our head, but would penetrate the deepest parts of who we are. And where they contradict our lifestyle, that truth would reign and we would walk in revelation and not in knowledge. Not by our own understanding, but by the truth which you have deposited. We would walk by faith and not by sight. And that the only knowledge we have is knowledge birthed by your Holy Spirit. Knowledge given from your word and from your lips. Lord, I pray that we would operate in confidence knowing that your desire is to live in us, to abide with us, that you love us, made all ways to come to us, and that as we abide in you, as a father carries a son, so you will carry us and flow out of us rivers of living water. I pray that we would receive that and walk in that in Jesus' name.
Amen.